0: The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Wednesday, the 9th of February. Professor Stephen Duckett will discuss if the current COVID response is really protecting the economy. Professor Duckett, tell us about yourself.
1: I'm Director of the Health and Aged Care Program at Grattan Institute, a domestic public policy think tank here in Melbourne. And uh, over the last few years, a lot of our work has been about COVID, <laughs> obviously, because it uh, has been the biggest health issue that has faced Australia in the last uh, 20,
0: 30, 40 years. Now, now Stephen, I'm just gonna look at the New South Wales context, and I guess it's really the Australian context. Not that long ago, a major reason cited by our government to justify its strategy of ditching all COVID restrictions, opening borders, and encouraging a return to, well, if you like, domestic and international travel, is that we need to open up in order to protect the economy. Can you comment on this strategy and how it's going? So the the
1: national strategy was was issued in September, uh, August, September of, of last year. And at the time or a couple of weeks beforehand when it was being developed, we had very low cases per day. We were pre-Delta at that time, and we could see that the vaccination was taking hold and we're in a good shape. Now, I think it was a risky strategy, very low rates of the total population were the thresholds and so on. What happened then was the world changed around us. Delta came with a vengeance and then even more worrying, Omicron came with a vengeance. And so when the environment changed, the government didn't change its policy, it kept with the same rhetoric. And this is a recipe for disaster and a disaster that we've seen. So, you know, in the in the month of January, I think we we saw half of all the deaths that have occurred throughout the whole pandemic in, in COVID. So in, in Australia, so it is obviously what policymakers should do is when the environment changes, you reassess where you are. This didn't happen. We saw the continuation of the same rhetoric, the continuation of the same arguments. And the worrying thing, David, is that it's all very well to say we're going to protect the economy, but the people themselves wanted to protect them. Mm. And what we saw in, in 2020 and, again, what we saw in 2021 was that people voted with their feet and they started to lock down themselves before the government imposed those lockdowns. And what we saw again in 2022 is economic activity movement is way down, not because the government has said don't go out and so on, although they have said if you go to work, you have to wear a mask, but rather because the people are worried about their own health and are voting where their feet. And so the economy is impacted probably more so than if the government had acted earlier to try and slow the spread. Professor
0: Duckett, another issue is getting the messages right out there. Now, we've had a lot of optimistic messaging from the government uh, recently. Uh, The peak is over, Uh, we have defied the worst case scenario with regards hospitalizations, and they also mentioned death, even though you did say that in fact, half the death of COVID has really occurred in the last month. And the feeling is that things will get better for us from now. And yet, The ordinary people would see the rising infection rates have created, as you said, a uh, self-lockdown. We're staying home. We're not going out. We've all been asked to get our third jabs, but the writing is on the wall for a fourth. And in the context of waning immunity, lower booster rates, and possibly the emergence of new variants like the BA2, I I can see that cold water has been thrown on this initial optimism that we are, Winning the war against COVID, so I'm seeing that there's a message failure here. What is actually going on there? I, I I hear what you said is that they're not changing their tact and that they have maintained the same strategy, but clearly, Stephen, it's it's not really working. And even this messaging is sounding a bit confused to me.
1: So one of the principles of risk communication is you should be honest with people and tell them what the real reality is, and. What we know is that there are two potential realities. We know that there's going to be another dominant virus. That is for certain. The virus mutates. It will be, by definition, because it's the new dominant one, much more transmissible than the old one. That we know. What we don't know is whether this next transmissible will be even lower in its uh, severity than Omicron. So it might just pass us by and we don't notice it. Or it might go back to Delta and be more virulent, more uh, serious. Those are two scenarios that no one can tell you which one will be the reality because both things happen with viruses. Sometimes the virus is, becomes less serious over time and sometimes it doesn't and we don't know. So if you say the only possible future Is this optimistic one and we're not going to even talk about or think about or plan for the other one, you're foolhardy, risky and you're not being honest with the public. So I'm one of those who say look I don't know and nobody else does but we've got to plan for the worst even though we hope for the best and that's where we should be and that's the, the politicians, the bureaucrats need to be honest
0: about those potentials. Mm -hmm. Do you think they have the capacity to turn around the messaging?
1: I think, David, part of the problem is it's a federal election year and the government wants everybody to be calm and safe and not worry about the future. And it's tried that strategy three times. I mean, it was hoping that the vaccination rollout would go perfectly in 2021 and we'd everybody be vaccinated by August, September, and we'd have an early election in October on the back of it. It was then hoping that everybody would be happy by Christmas, that we won't even have to talk about COVID, and then along came Omicron, and now it's hoping that it'll all be done by May and we'll have a May election. Well, so far, the previous two times it's, it's tried it, it hasn't worked, and I think the public knows that COVID is with us and will be still with us over the next couple of months. We'll still be mourning the deaths of the 4,000 or so people who have died. You know, it, it is not wise just to say you know, COVID, live with it, because that's not what's happening. People are worried about it. People, you know, schools are going back, which I think is appropriate, but parents are saying, my child is immunosuppressed. I'm not going to take my yeah. expose my child to that. And so all of these things are happening, and, and uh, we've got to recognise that. We've got to plan for it. We've got to actually say to people, yes, you still have to take protect protections. Yes, you still have to wear your masks. Yes, you have to be triple-dosed, not double-dosed, and so on.
0: What else would you put into the planning for the worst scenarios, Stephen?
1: There are some public health measures which we know work. We know ventilation works, we know masks work, we know exposing yourself less works. We have to be talking about those things as they are the new normal. We don't say, look, COVID normal is just, you know, don't take any notice of anything, put your head in the sand and hope for the best. COVID normal is worrying about these things and government sending signals that these things are still important. Yeah. And that's what government needs to be doing. It shouldn't be de-emphasising the risks. It should be saying, look, we're not going to lock you down in your for 200 days or whatever. What we are going to do is ask you to cooperate. We're going to ask you to be triple backs. We're going to ask you to wear masks. We're going to put money into ventilating our schools and so on open the windows, etc., etc., And that's what we need to be doing. And we need to be doing it now and talking about COVID, not trying to pretend that COVID will go away.
0: Well, all this is costing a lot of money, Stephen, and, and all our uh, strategies does and, in fact, will cost money, uh, from vaccinations and PCR tests to uh, uh, R8 uh, rats uh, for uh, pensioners and what have you. But if you look around the globe at the moment, even Australia as a nation, there seem to be a lot of, if you like, economic headwinds and challenges ahead. How do you, as a health economist, understand the challenges facing, if you like, risks to access to money and the need to spend so much? How do we address this issue? So, David,
1: if I use my
0: situation I used to go overseas for a holiday
1: every year, mostly to Europe, but sometimes to other places, and I haven't been for two years. I am desperately keen to go in 2022. I won't go if I don't feel safe. So people are slowing down economic recovery because we're worried about the health, our health, and exposing ourselves to these risks. So the first thing, it is not a case where the economy and the health system or the health health policy is in opposition, they are working in exactly the same direction. If we get our public health measures right, the economy will flow. You can see it, you look out the window today, people are not going out and spending and so on. They're staying at home because they're worried about the health. So the government, you know, any of this rhetoric which says, oh, we're doing this for the economy, They're not doing it for the economy. They're hurting the economy by not prioritising public health measures that people want them to do. And that is the same locally, it's the same nationally, and it's the same globally. We have to worry about COVID transmission everywhere in the world because
0: mutations occur anywhere in the world and we travel
1: everywhere in the world.
0: Yes, I've heard it said that uh, COVID anywhere is COVID everywhere. But, David, the other point is that COVID, the virus, doesn't move, people move and they bring the virus with them. And that's what we have to worry about because people move. And and we will be moving and we will no longer have quarantine because the numbers are just too large. So I'm just going to come back to the point of vaccine inequity, um, Stephen. We all know that we need to immunise everybody in the globe. And yet I see the fact that Supply issues, the logistics of getting shots in arms of everybody in the world in the most remote villages behind the back of huge mountains. And if you like, waning efficacy. So every three or four months, we got to redo it again and again. And also the fact that there are significant amounts of vaccine hesitancy in some of the countries I'm not sure just personally, whether we can achieve global vaccination rates that may actually impede the large numbers of um, infections out there. How do you feel about this?
1: Yeah, so David, I think you're right that there are there are countries where the vaccine vaccination rate has been very, very low, and this is a huge risk. But that shouldn't say give up. <laughs> you know this is not a council of despair. We should say, Yes, we recognise there's a problem. What can we do about that problem? What is our job to say, well, there may well be hesitancy, but the problem is not a lack of vaccines. And at the moment in many of these countries, it is a lack of vaccines. And so what we need to be saying is, let's address one problem at a time. What is the rate limiting factor today? The rate limiting factor today is access to vaccines. Once we've got the access to vaccines fixed, then we can address hesitancy and the same thing happened in australia this is not rocket science you know we we had low vaccination rates because we had stuffed up the vaccine procurement we had low rates and then as soon as the virus started to spread this so-called hesitancy more or less disappeared because everybody was worried and they got their shots and we've now got this highest rate of double vaccination in the world so you know, it is it is something we've observed here and it's something we should say, let's fix the access, the vaccine access problem first. It's in our interest to do that. Why don't we do that first? And then we can start other things. And I was thinking, David, as you were asking these questions, and I might get this wrong because but someone was doing some research on malaria and they said, can we insert malaria vaccine essentially into lettuce? I think it was, it might have been into rice or something like that. So you actually didn't have to do a vaccine jab, but it was through the ordinary diet people were protected. And, you know, it's that sort of thing. We need to be saying, what is the future of the world in terms of protecting us against these pandemics, against these infectious diseases? And we need to be doing a lot more research on these sorts of things about how do we make protection, how do we protect the public against these things in a much more sophisticated way. Uh, that we can now do with new science.
0: Yes, Stephen, I have heard that there are nasal sprays coming up, which I think could be a whole lot more acceptable to people.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what we should be doing a lot more of.
0: What are the best and worst case scenarios in your mind in Australia? So an unlikely but best case scenario is that the virus
1: has already peaked, that uh, hospitalisations will peak soon, deaths will peak soon, and by, say, the end of March, everything will be to a 2019 life. I think that is highly unlikely. What I think is a best case scenario is that our hospitalizations drop way down. The issue is that as a, not everybody has the dose, and, and you can get uh, reinfected now, and all those sorts of things. So I think we really are hoping that we get down to low background rates of infections and something like, as we were hoping for in, in 2020, something like the flu. Now, in a bad year, there were 1,000 deaths from the flu a year. In January, there a 1,000 deaths from COVID. So we're a long way from a flu-like scenario, but it's that sort of scenario, and that is what I mean by living with COVID. We accept it as a risk. It doesn't alter our behaviour. It doesn't actually force the economy to slow down. But we are, but we're recon- and we're nowhere, nowhere near that at the moment, and we shouldn't pretend that we are.
0: The worst case scenario, Stephen?
1: The worst case scenario is that background rate burbles along for a while. There's another mutation, and we go back
0: to the thousands
1: of uh, cases a day and the uh, significant number of deaths in a month.
0: I, I hear what you're saying is that um, it really comes back down to some really basic messaging, isn't it? It's not rocket science. It's just learning to make the right deci- decisions for ourselves, knowing it makes a difference. The air we breathe, it's all about uh, minimising exposure, and yet the conversations don't seem to reflect the importance of this.
1: So, so David, there's
0: a couple of points i made.
1: That As I said, we've been doing a lot of work on COVID over the last couple of years, and I've I've had this graph of the first wave and the second wave. When I redid that graph a couple of weeks ago, I had to change it to a logarithmic scale because the current wave was so different from what was happening in 2020 and 2021. And so we have to recognise that things change and we have to change. That's the first point. The second point is... Yes, I believe in this personal responsibility that we have to do things ourselves, but the government has to step up as well, not instead of as well. They have to make it safer for me. So a couple of days ago, I went to office to Officeworks to, to print something and inadvertently I went closer to someone than I really should have. And he turned around and said, could you back off a bit? And I thought, Whoops, I made a mistake. I hadn't, the markings were there on the floor, but I'd slipped up in my behaviour to help and protect others. And that's what the government should be doing. The government should be doing a lot to help and protect others and to encourage other people to do the third dose, to actually make sure mask wearing is still compulsory indoors in Victoria and not everybody is doing it. I went to the supermarket, 20% people were not wearing their masks. So there's all these sorts of things. We should be actually collectively and with
0: government support and government action trying to actually help and protect ourselves. Another word that's been thrown around quite a lot is the word mandatory and mandate. As an economist, how, how do you all feel about that? We did a report
1: on COVID back in July of last year, and we said, we think, vaccine passports are part of it. This is about signalling to the public, it is safer for me to go to a restaurant when everybody in that restaurant is vaccinated than for me to go to a restaurant when I can be exposed. So we want to make it normal that if I am going to live safely in a COVID environment, I want to know that where I'm going is safe. When I hop on the tram, I want everybody to wear a mask I want to wear a mask to protect myself and to protect everybody else. When I go to a restaurant, I want to know that other people who are eating around me are protecting me by their vaccination. So it's those sorts of things. So I'm very strongly in favour of these so-called vaccine mandates to actually make sure that all of us are protected and that we all
0: collectively are protecting each other there seems to be a problem with the fact that while some people are truly concerned about vaccines and they probably need more information the if you like momentum of the anti-vaxxers and the conspiracy theorists and Mm. all sorts of political persuasion and all sorts of causes have now come under the one umbrella and it's become quite a big force with with many different directions And yet it represents a significant resistance to what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, but David, David, the number of people we're talking about is trivially small. Their voice is amplified in the media out of all proportion to the size we're talking about. The vast bulk of Australians are double vaccinated. And... Those who are not double vaccinated may be not vaccinated because of health conditions, or there are very few of those, in fact. But, you know, the vast bulk are vaccinated. The vast bulk are, are living by the rules. So you've got this tiny, tiny, tiny fringe who have their voice amplified out of all proportion, and that's what we should be worried about. We shouldn't be saying, yes, there are a 1,000 people that marched down the streets of Melbourne the other day, but there are 3 million people who live
0: in Melbourne who are vaccinated. Stephen, um, as we come to the end of the interview, just just tell me, how can we as GPs and as individuals really help to get this back on track?
1: Well, GPs, health workers generally have borne the, the brunt of all of this. And increasingly GPs will be because You know the hospitals are being overwhelmed the hospitals are saying look we now need to have COVID positive pathways we need the GPs to be engaged and this I think is an opportunity for the future we need to connect the general practice world back into the hospital world so that the there is a seamless interface and that the hospitals recognize the skills that GPs have the skills that they have in knowing their patients And the trust that if you've been going to the same GP for the last five years, that person trusts the GP and will trust the information the GP gives. And so they have to actually, the the health system, the government, the hospitals have to be getting the right information to the GPs, helping them understand what the the hospitals want and using the skills and resources of general practice. But in order for that to work well, you can't just announce something on the radio and expect (laughs) GPs to actually pick it up next minute I mean, which has been happening, David, right throughout the pandemic that, you know, the government makes announcements and say, oh, you go and see a GP for this. And the GPs had no warning whatsoever. It's just been a disaster.
0: Absolutely. We wake up to all sorts of new things happening here. That was such an important point, Stephen. How do you make first steps here? Is it the government <laughs> or is it the GP? So,
1: I mean, virtually there's responsibilities on both sides. The government has to get its act together. It has to say if I've told you I'm going to give you a thousand vaccine doses next week, I will give you a thousand vaccine doses next week. You know, so you know the poor old primary general practices have been really under the pump for all these reasons. So the first thing is the government to get this act together to do what it says it's going to do, to get the right information, to get the information early, to get the information in a way that the general practice practice and the general practitioners can use it. General practices, on the other hand, also have to say we are part of the whole health system we're going to be part of this we are going to look after our patients to the extent we can we're going to actually welcome the opportunity to take patients back from the hospital and actually look after them because this is part of what holistic care is all about
0: that is a very powerful voice and i hope it's heard well and truly out there stephen uh, because this is such important things to hear and i love that last bit where you're saying that it is high time that we rework the connections with uh, tertiary care and primary care and decide how we share the brunt of work, how we value each other and how we share information.
1: And I think one of the things, I'm, I'm, I chair the board of a primary health network, a PHN, and I think part of the job of PHNs is to facilitate this, this interface. You know, we have good connections with the general practice world in our, in our area, we also have good connections with the hospitals and we need to actually be saying to the hospitals, don't exclude the GPs as they often want to, engage them, be, be, you know, have them as part of your pathways, recognise they're there, they know their patients really well. And the PHNs also need to be saying to the general practice, you know, we're, we're going to actually make sure that the doses get to you and all those sorts of things and we're going to actually make this interchange this inter- much, much easier than it has been in the past. And that one of the lessons of COVID is do this in everything, in diabetes care, in you know heart disease and so on and so
0: forth. Well, this opens up another conversation maybe for another time, but you're really saying that um, despite the, if you like, bad news story of COVID, um, who knows that uh, whether or not we will in the future see a different form of healthcare in
1: Australia. And indeed, David, the government's drag kicking and screaming Screening to do something about telehealth because of COVID. It hasn't got it right, in my view, into the future, but it's getting closer to getting it right now than it was three years ago.
0: Stephen, I just am very grateful for your time and all that you have given us today. A lot of food for thought, but more importantly, steps to be taken and measures to be, if you like, uh, put in place to help our patients and our profession uh, for the good of the country. You get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website. Go to the CPD section and click on Self Claim.